Hey, long overdue. Welcome back to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. I am Ted King. I'm your host. I'm amid an, an indefinite road trip with my wife and little baby daughter, Hazel. More on that in just one second. First things first, our guest today, Jess Sarah. Jess is a professional cyclist. She's a professional chef. She's an entrepreneur as the founder and owner of the energy bar company, JoJ. Jess is awesome. She is as friendly as she is thoughtful. She is as hardworking as she is creative. You see, in the world of professional cycling, especially the, the mandatorily scrappy world of, of professional women cycling, you need to be, let's just say crafty. And that is on display in her recent pivot to gravel. You need to be part of the gig economy. You need to often juggle many gigs, and we're going to talk about that today. Jess has some stories. Man, oh man, she has stories. Those of camaraderie, of her tremendous sense of teamwork, of, of recovery from some enormous setbacks. What I really enjoyed about this, this conversation was the refreshing atmosphere, the refreshing feel of it, the refreshing, the refreshing stories that she has to tell. So now, perhaps more than ever, I'm at some very weird times in the global pandemic. I really enjoyed this conversation. So, so this conversation came about amid our road trip. Laura, Hazel, and I, we bought a van, we hit the road, and now are two weeks into the trip, having safely made it from the East Coast to West. We are currently in Seattle. We are visiting family. And, and to be honest, that's pretty much not the linchpin, but a very strong linchpin as to why this entire van escapade came about in the first place. That is to introduce Hazel to her West Coast family during the time that that we really don't feel like hopping on an airplane. Laura and I have talked about getting a van for years. However, I am confident that it would not have come to fruition were it not for both having Hazel and a global pandemic. So lemonade from lemons, my friends. So maybe mm, a week ago or so, we were in Whitefish, Montana. We were visiting Jess and her boyfriend, Sam. We were masked up. We were socially distanced, but they still showed us around, showing us around town and having a great time. Super cool down that they're Whitefish. I can't really say that we took in town proper, so to speak, but we, we explored the gravel around town. We explored what there is in the, in the surrounding areas, and it was extraordinary. Glacier National Park, the road to the sun, shredding in and around and on top of the Whitefish Ski Area, taking in the Whitefish Lake. Jess and Sam have some very cool stuff up their sleeves, so please pay attention to those two. Staying apprised of our recent road trip as much as you are interested, my guess is you know that I am Ted King, and on Instagram and on all social media outlets, at sign, I am Ted King. Laura is... At sign, Laura Cameron King. Check out what we got going on. We've got two bikes each. We've got six sets of wheels total. We've got a mobile shower, a bed, a baby's pack and play bed, and we have life on four wheels. And also two wheels, depending on if you're in the van or riding a bike. So if you want to stay apprised of these crazy times amid these crazy times, please do so. I'm going to leave it at that for now. Thanks very much for listening, folks. Next up my conversation with Jess Sarah.
magic of modern media. Yay. <laughs> so uh, we went for a little bike ride today. What? Tell me, tell me what we did. Tell me what we did today. So we did, in my opinion, the best gravel riding that there is to offer in Whitefish, Montana. Maybe in most states. I think it's my favorite gravel ride that I've ever done. And I, I loved it. I, I think it's scenic as all get out. It is challenging as all get out. It is... Um, it was cool contrast from the previous days, which were rolling and a little bit of climby. And then this was like proper, let's, let's do some wicked climbing. Um, now you are born and raised in whitefish. Is that correct? Correct. You did not get into cycling until well after you had left whitefish. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So let's go way back to the beginning. Tell me about upbringing in whitefish. Montana. What's it like growing up here? So my parents, actually, this is a cool story. They met in college at uh, in Fort Collins at Colorado State. And they got married, dropped out of school. And my dad went to a log home building school in Canada. And they saw pictures of 40 acres at the base of the mountains outside of Whitefish. And they bought the land based off the pictures. And they uh. drove their little hippie van over here and moved here and settled on that land, recruited a bunch of their friends to come out and basically build that house. And so I was born on in the trailer that was outside of that log house build huh. at home birth. <laughs> so it's surprising that I didn't find cycling sooner, but I think most people who live in Whitefish, they come here because they want to be here. They love to ski. They love not seeing a lot of people. They love being outside. And so I grew up with a spirit for adventure and being outdoors, but just didn't specifically find the knack for cycling until I made my way to grad school. So yeah, whitefish circa whenever your parents moved here is probably not whitefish of today. Like in my mind, Whitefish probably hit my radar in the same time as like the boulders and the bends and the Burlingtons and these super hip places to move. Um, what do you suppose the appeal was when your folks moved here? I mean, was it, it was, it's a wild West mountain town. Um, that's what they saw and they were, they were drawn to. What do you, do you, do you have any inkling of what life was like then? I think they were both drawn here because they both grew up in cities. Uh My dad grew up in Chicago. He used to go to a lake with his dad every summer in the mountains. And he always said, I want to live in the mountains. My mom grew up in cities, different cities actually across the world. Um, Her father was involved in the oil industry, so they moved all over the place. And that's what drew them to Colorado for school. Uh And I think that they had some friends that had told them about Montana and about this area and about Glacier National. National Park, and they were just sold on the land. It was the town. It's so funny because now that I come back once a year, I get to, it's like seeing a person once a year. You're like, whoa, your hair is long. You know what I mean? Like, wow, there's a hundred new buildings and like all of these things happening in this town. And it's just expanded to the point where I guess at some point in time, someone told their friend and they told their friend and then it was in a magazine and yeah. Voila, here we are. It's it is goofy how that happens. So then yeah, growing up here, what were your what were your avenues? What were you into? What'd you what'd you like to do? Were you into sports? Were you into music? 
I was mostly into outdoor stuff. My sister was more of the ball sport athlete, and she was really good. I think she had the school three. She might still have the school three point record for basketball, actually, um, which is hilarious because she's like five feet tall. But <laughs> she was a wonderful point guard. Me, I gravitated more to the outdoors, and I was on the Nordic ski team when I was little. My dad worked on the ski mountain, and so I used to sleep in the chair three shack and ski during the day. Oh, that's awesome. And just loved hiking, and I pursued exercise physiology in school. Mm -hmm. And I did that at the time more because I wanted to be around that sort of environment in a career sense. I didn't want to be stuck somewhere where I was like in an office. I wasn't really exactly sure what I was doing until I got into the program at the University of Montana and pinpointed the area that I wanted to focus on. So you were doing exercise phys undergrad? Undergrad also, yeah. Okay. Um... And you then go off to graduate school at some point. And your entry into cycling, I've heard slivers of it, and it's a fascinating story. <laughs> um, so how'd you get into, say, how'd you segue exercise fizz into into professional cycling? Because often I feel like it's almost the opposite. People are like, oh, I'm into cycling and my career is going nowhere, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study something that, that fascinates me. Right. And that's interesting because there was points in my career where I was kicking myself thinking, I wish I had found cycling earlier. I'm too old for this. Like, or when you're having a really bad race and you're just like, what am I doing? Like, but nonetheless, I, I went to grad school because in undergrad, I realized I wanted to pursue a PhD and the research and the money for the research at that time had a lot to do with environmental studies that looked at heat and cold and different things like how it affected the body and what you needed for nutrition when you were doing high-level competition. And I walked into a program where there was already IRB-supported um, studies. So it's like there's an internal review board that reviews all research, and it's hard to get these protocols past them. And this was already set up. It was there. The money was there. And they were looking at elite male cyclists and how they lost calcium through sweat and how that contributed to bone density. Mm -hmm. So essentially I was trying to get male cyclists to come to a lab for $200 multiple times, ride a bike in an environmental chamber with all these patches on their skin while I collected their sweat. And here's the kicker. Back when I was in grad school, there was not a nice little tablet you swallowed to measure core temperature. You had to measure it with an anal thermometer. <laughs> <laughs> there it is, the sliver of the story that I know. And you uh, had to insert it yourself, and it's not short. Okay. I mean, it's got to measure your core temperature, uh -huh. not the surface, the uh -huh. core. So you got to get that in there, and then you got to ride on the bike with that hanging out of your butt. And so, like, people were flocking to the lab, clearly, you know. Every male cyclist was basically lining up outside the door. 200 bucks. That's like a really good preem. Yeah, right. Um, okay, so you're you're taking these core temperatures and right, how does that segue into you Me. entering the bicycle world? So if you were a guy and I asked you to put that up your butt, what would you ask me first? I would say, uh, have you ever tried this? Exactly. <laughs> so oh, I kept getting that question and my mentor professor was like, well, you better put yourself through the study. Uh -huh. And so my friend and I, my friend was also working on the study with me. She was another student. Uh, we 
put ourselves through the study and you have to measure your baseline um, in pretty much any study, weight, all of those things. And we did a VO2 max test and this was sort of to gauge like making sure we were in that elite level range. Um, we were getting the right measurements. And so I did a VO2 max test in tennis shoes on a lab bike. And those things are horrible, by the way, if you've ever done one, like you have all the equipment on your face. And I had a VO2 max of 74 milliliters per kilogram per minute, which Boom. I didn't know, but that's a very high VO2 max for a female on yeah, a bike, yeah. especially. So my professor who was on a mountain bike team, she said, come out and ride with us. And she took me out. She gave me her aluminum Ellsworth, which was this super <laughs> old, funky bike company in San Diego. And I started riding with them and it was everything was natural. It was like I'd found what I was supposed to be doing and why I was drawn to the outdoors. And that's how it all started. That's incredible. So grad school's in San Diego. Uh, did you finish the yep. degree? Yep, finished the degree. Nice. Abandoned my PhD program to pursue the glorious and illustrious life of pro cycling. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which, so, okay, timestamp it. What's the date? Well, when do you graduate? So I, I finished in 2007. Okay. Whereupon you find you have a, a massive VO2 and you get into cycling. Um, what, was the, what was the trajectory from there? Did you, were you immediately racing, you know, Joe downtown crit or what was, what were you doing? I, I don't even think I really understood what road racing was at that point because I had seen in San Diego the curved bar bikes out on the road. Sure. And that wasn't a huge thing in Montana where I came from. There's a lot of mountain biking. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, that looks cool. They're all riding on the coast and it's beautiful. However, my professor who was a mountain biker, she encouraged me to do a mountain bike race. And back then the categories were like beginner, sport, and elite. And I think I did a sport level race and I was on the podium and it was fun. Mm -hmm. And I was actually at the gym reading some sort of outdoor magazine. I read about Xterra off-road triathlon and the world championship in Hawaii that descended down this volcano. And there was a story about this person who had crashed and got the nickname Meatloaf Head. Oh. And I, for some reason, was like, that sounds amazing. Like, I really want to do that race. I don't know what it was. Sidebar, Meatloaf Head because his face looked like meatloaf after he crashed into the volcano? Yeah, into the lava. Oh, <laughs> that is heinous. Yes, I, that does sound like a nice draw. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, who wouldn't want to do yeah, that? Exactly. <laughs> I believe Laura's done that race before. Maybe maybe the, the they moved that world championship to the other side of the island. Um, there was a lot of mechanicals and crashes on that old uh -huh. course, and I think people were whining. Were you immediately racing were you pursuing those races were you at those races straight out of uh, well, 2007 what's the yeah what's your timeline here the problem is is that i didn't really know how to swim yes <laughs> so i needed to add that element in and my professor simon marshall who was married to leslie patterson who is three-time xterra world champion oh my i had seen her pictures in his office and she looked really intense so i kind of like timidly went in there one day and said so does your wife coach and can she help me? And he was like, yeah, for sure. Come out and ride with us this weekend. Nice. And I did. And we hit it off right away. And 
I met her at a pool, learned that I needed a cap and goggles and other things for swimming, you know, just show up and swim. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did our first, she, interestingly enough, had also been introduced to Xterra and was coming from like the ITU world. And, uh, you know, she grew up in the sport in Scotland and had like a really intense upbringing in it. And she was looking for something a little more casual now that she was living in San Diego. And mm-hmm. um, so we we kind of trained together and we did our first race together. And it was a race that was so hot that they called for a no wetsuit swim I did not have a triathlon suit, so I swam in my bibs in a sports bra full of water. It was horrible. I thought I was going to drown. But then I changed into a different kit in the transition area. And because it was so hot, I had a cooler full of cold drinks because I thought that was a good idea. Everyone else is like gone. And I'm like, where is everybody? But then I found them all passed out on the side of the road while I have my ice cold water and my nice comfortable kit. Because you have a PhD in sweat and learning how to... To keep your body okay. like, well, come on, people, what are you doing? And I ended up on the podium at that race was a qualifier for Worlds. And so then it was like the, the deal was done. Dang. Now I'm in. <laughs> Super cool. Okay. So how long does one race a pro uh, Xterra career? I mean, basically, how do you segue that to road racing? Well, I feel like it's a little bit like the gravel world. Everyone kind of has their own little privateer sponsor model, very similar to regular triathlon. I think Xterra is probably lower on the totem pole. And so it was sort of a career on the side of creating my private chef company. And that was where I was making my money. And then Xterra was my passion. And what ended up happening is I started to have a lot of problems with my right leg to the point where there was a day I was running a hill repeat workout and I ended up laying on the side of the trail and I thought I was going to need to call an ambulance. Like I felt like I couldn't feel my right leg, but at the same time it was really painful. Mm -hmm. And we assumed that it was a running injury and I took 12 weeks off from running, came Mm -hmm. back, same thing happened on the first run. So I started going to all of these doctors, had all of these tests done, compartment syndrome, Mm -hmm. MRIs, nerve studies, couldn't figure it out. And then I found Dr. Richberg in San Diego and he told me, you know, I've seen something similar to this in elite male cyclists who are older um, and it's called iliac artery endofibrosis. Mm -hmm. He said, I'd be really surprised if this was the case with you because you're new into this career. You're so young, but I think you should see this radiologist that knows how to test for it on the bike. Mm -hmm. Um, So I saw this radiologist and this is, by the way, the short version of about a year and a half of a lot of pain and suffering. And I raced through a lot of this. Um, I actually got a top 10 at Worlds with basically a numb leg, which isn't a a great result relative to what my goals were. But I look back on it and I think, wow, I can't believe I was doing that. So I saw the radiologist and they essentially, you go as hard as you can on the bike until you can't feel your leg. And then they throw you on a table and they try to take your systolic blood pressure at your ankle. And I didn't even have one. Like it, it didn't even exist. And so then we did some CAT scans with my legs crunched up like a cycling position. And he said he estimated that my artery on that side had closed and kinked over to the point where I had about 10 to 12% of blood flow in that leg. Holy cow. So I had made it almost so bad that I probably would have had to have the surgery even if I didn't continue in the sport. Um, 
But at this point, I was so laser focused on like what was going to happen after the surgery that I just got it done. Yeah. And it was an invasive surgery. And I took a really slow um, comeback and kind of stayed off the trails for a while and started riding more on the road. And I had done a lot of the group rides in San Diego prior to that. And they're really hard. Like anyone knows who visits there, the group Mm -hmm. rides are sort of notorious. And I started to really, really like it and was encouraged by a bunch of the local guys to try doing some road racing. And that's pretty much how I got into it. That is your atypical entry into the sport of pro cycling. Yeah. Um, man, oh man. So I am sympathetic to iliac artery endofibrosis in that my brother had the surgery. And yeah, I feel like in the sport of cycling, people either know it or don't know it. And you you will occasionally uh, encounter people who will explain symptoms to you, which is mm-hmm. basically, hey, my the harder I pedal, my leg seems to go numb. And you're just immediately, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know what you got. Um, and yeah, there's there's plenty of... Big names who have had the surgery, and and it's it's pretty darn frightening. And correct me if I'm wrong, you have had two of these surgeries. I, Is that correct? Yep, I'd had my left leg in 2015. How do they? How do you? How how are you predisposed to it? How do you, have they ever decided what causes it? I've been trying to figure that out, and I know that my vascular surgeon has tried to piece this together. Um, a lot of people know that I've had the surgery and I've talked to a lot of cyclists. Jacob Rathy and sure. Emma Grant both saw my surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it has something to do with autoimmune disorders that mm. ha- like, I think both of them also have Raynaud's. So there's something going on with our circulation to begin with. I have Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid disorder. Mm-hmm. And everyone that I've talked to has some sort of autoimmune disorder so it's something about when your psoas muscle gets big and it's kind of pushing on that artery, if you have that inflammatory response, like an autoimmune disease would act, I think that's what it's, it's causing that artery to react that way, thicken to protect itself. And then when it starts to thicken too much, it closes and sometimes will kink over. That is, I mean, there's no scientific evidence to back up that theory, but I, I feel like it has to have something to do with it. Yeah. Well, and I feel like it's still rare enough that, yeah, it'd be really difficult to get the, the scientific studies, but it's becoming more and more Common. prevalent and known and diagnosed and shoot. Yeah, it is It is scary. I've had friends who have had the symptoms and they know they have it, but then they haven't gone through the surgery because there are plenty of, there's there are no guarantees from the surgery from what mm-hmm. I understand. Um, okay, you you hit on it a little while ago, the atypical approach to pro cycling and 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 basically what I would call professional female cycling as a gig economy. Like you have many gigs to make these things work. You talked about your catering career. So at what point does that enter the picture? Yet another accident that wasn't planned. Once I decided that I wasn't doing a PhD, I I had been working at UCSD during grad school in some other studies. And then I applied for a full-time job managing a 
larger health study. And we worked closely with a part-time nutritionist who was a private chef. And her and I gravitated towards each other because we would often bring like elaborate lunches to work while other people were eating out. And she asked me, hey, do you think you want to come and be an assistant in some at some of the private parties that I cater in my clients' homes? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. And so I started doing that with her. And she ended up getting married and moving away. And I inherited her clients. Huh. And I inherited two clients specifically that were incredible clients that I worked for in their house for the next nine years. No kidding. And through them and the parties that I would cater, I met other clients. So I had five to six consistent clients that I was managing, cooking all of their meals Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, darting off to stage races. My rest days were always like 14-hour cooking days on my feet. I would come home from Redlands and be like, in the kitchen all day. Holy cow. (laughs) So I thought if I could just get out of this cycle and not be so tired all the time, I would, I would do better. And I got my first pro contract with, um, 2016, which is now 2020. And that's when my, had my other artery surgery. So the path didn't go the way that I thought, but also, um, in all of this experience, I learned a lot about applying the nutrition that I had studied to sport because they're two really different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can be you can be very knowledgeable and know everything in the books, but once you actually have to apply it, you learn so much. And I felt like there was a something was missing in that market for nutrition and very similar to Untapped. And we've had this conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm into real food. Yeah, and and I'll actually pay a little bit more money for real food. And I also like things that taste good. Mm-hmm. I'm not the type of person that just wants to shove gels and stuff down my throat. Like I really, I really think that when you're putting better things in your body, it's easier to absorb and you're just a better machine. So Mm -hmm. I created JoJ Bar, which is my energy bar company. And that sort of was like a segue into other markets. And before I knew it, I became like the go-to chef for Triathlete Magazine, Women's Running Magazine. And that led to catering camps. It led to catering for a big bike company called Cervelo for a long time. And that just is how it happened. Crazy. So, okay, timestamp again. When do you when do you found uh, JoJ? So I founded JoJ... Realistically, in my kitchen in like 2010, but this was just a project to make yep. cookies for the bike. Mm-hmm. That was my plan. And when do you, right, how does, I mean, it's it's no small feat to go from that to SKUs and UPCs and getting yeah. product in shops. And so, so you, yeah, when do you become a legitimate business where you're being sold throughout, maybe not just locally, but but nationwide? Yeah, it's like people were like bootlegging the bars yeah. <laughs> under the counter at bike shops wrapped in foil. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> it was like the moonshine of Encinitas. <laughs> and uh, I realized that I could not bake bars till two o'clock in the morning anymore and wrap them up and send them around. And so my idea was to find a commercial kitchen because that was what I thought would be the next step. And I talked to some of my clients who actually own part of Sun Foods and they said, no, 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 you need to find a co-packing facility that does everything for you. It cuts out all of that. It'll be less expensive. You can ingredient share. And we found a co-packing facility in San Diego. It was way easier than I thought it would be. Um, We shared equipment with another bar manufacturer. We shared ingredients with that bar manufacturer. And we just started making it low level, 
uh, in clear packages, label slapping everything, and until it grew to the point where it needed a legitimate business plan and started JoJ. The the idea was it was going to be called Harmony Bar, and we lost that name in trademarking, and there's no words. Every word is trademarked. Precisely. So the, the name was made up, but then it, it just became sort of like my chef work. I already had contacts in magazines. I had contacts to racing and athletes, and it started growing. And the big jump for us was when we got REI and I actually went onto LinkedIn and found the buyer and he went to Montana State, which was our huge football uh. rivalry. <laughs> so I messaged him and you get so much spam on LinkedIn. I didn't think he would respond. So I just said, told him who I was, that I make this product that I wanted to get in his hands. And I said, but I'm really sorry that you're a bobcat. I don't know if I can trust you with it. And he <laughs> thought that was great. And that's literally, he was like, I do get so much spam, but he was like, that's cool that you're from Montana. And that was sort of like luck that we got into that store, but we're growing slowly and I'm proud of the progress so far. Sure. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it is about one's connections and network and then, and then throwing a little cheeky jab in there. So that's kind of perfect. Um, now when I think of just Sarah, I think of just Sarah, the pro cyclist. And what I mentioned a second ago, and clearly is what we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes, is you seize upon the gig economy. Like you've done so many other interesting things that have allowed you to get into this. And I don't even want to say allowed you to get into the sport, but that's just the unfolding of life that yeah. is where you are. So let's now talk about cycling. You said 2016 was your first pro year with. Were they Peanut Butter & Co. then? They were. It was 2015 with 2016. Uh-huh. Now 2020. Okay. And soon it'll be 2024. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Give me the, the arch of your... Arc? Arch? Give me one of those of your cycling career from 2016 through, with bated breath, 2020. So... I came into the scene really hot and I was getting real good results before I was on pro teams. And I think I beat every pro team at San Dimas. I got a really good result. And so I walked over to some of the team tents and said, can I send my resume? And everyone said to me, you're already on our list. And uh. I was like, okay, so this is good. And I got offers from every team. And what Nicola and Mari offered me was a chance to go to Europe with the national team in the beginning of 2015. And I don't really consider myself someone who has an ego. I'm usually the type of person that is worrying about other people. Um, but I really thought that I was good. And I really thought that I wanted to go to the Olympics. Like mm -hmm. I wanted to be, I wanted to be the next Evie Stevens. Like I wanted to be the best American female. And I think I had the capability to do it, but, um, it didn't work out like that. And I'm actually glad now because the experiences that I've had, I mean, they lead you to where you are. And so I started racing for that team and had the iliac artery surgery off the gun. Miss team camp was completely devastated, thought my life was over and came back from the second surgery way too fast. Um, I ended up racing Redlands like 10 weeks after the surgery. Ooh, well, yeah. I raced three stages of it and I was, I was like out. So 
that that whole year led me into a downward spiral of when you're overtrained, injured, and you don't know what you're doing because you don't have the maturity as an athlete yet to understand that it's okay to take a break and come back strong rather than pushing it. And I ended up getting sick. I ended up finding out I had the thyroid disorder. It was just a really, really hard year. Um, but they they supported me and they understood that the talent was still there and they brought me back on the team the next season and we ended up going to Europe and I got the experience of racing all of the spring classics and Flanders and big races and um, I hated it in the moment. Like it was so terrifying and so different and hard on Olympic year especially. Such a different sport, like European racing. I just, I always called it that. It's a different sport. It's longer, harder, faster, different. That's 100% accurate. Actually, it really is a completely different sport in Europe. Yeah. But it makes you so much better when you come back to America and you're like, this huge road with only 80 people. Sure. This is really nice. Mm-hmm. So we we came back two days before Redlands. Like Flanders was on a Sunday, I think. Mm-hmm. And then Redlands started on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So there was five of us that came in to support Kristen Ar- Armstrong and she was going back for her bid for another gold medal in the time trial that year. And... I hadn't really raced with her that much. Um, I'd raced with her a little bit the prior year, but I was, I'd sucked. So I don't think she really knew who I was. And we instantly clicked as like a yellow jersey domestique situation. And I don't know how I fell into that role, but I think she really trusted me. And I had kind of let go of wanting to be on the top. My body just wasn't there. And so... I, I think that she had told Nicola at one point, I, I want Jess to come to all the races and I really trust her and I feel safe around her. And that meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And so the next race, we headed over to the tour of Gila and there was a horrendous crash like an hour into the first stage that completely demolished me. I mean, this was almost a career ending crash. Yeah. Um, literally and literally. figuratively. Yeah. Which so. led to... <laughs> At this point, over the course of this conversation, you've had two surgeries. That one, correct me if I'm wrong, that led to a surgery, if I'm not mistaken. That one led to like four different, three or four different surgeries. And I had also in 2014, the year going into being pro, I was at the national championship in the lead group of eight ladies who ended up, I was actually with Allison Powers. We got dropped on the last 200 meters of the climb. And at that point in time, I felt like I could descend as good as her. And we were around each other a lot in the Peloton and we were taking poles on the descent and I rolled a tubular in the corner. Oh my gosh. Thankfully did not crash her out. She went on to win the national championship that day. Yep. And I was really hurt from that too. And I had two surgeries on my collarbone. Um, The original one, the the nerve plexus was sewed into the sutures. Nothing is easy with me, Ted. Like if I'm going to have a <laughs> collarbone surgery, like I'm going to do it right. right. Like I'm going to like really get messed up. So yeah, so I'm familiar with surgeries, have that crash. Honestly, it was so painful. I did not know that I would race again just because I didn't ever want to be in pain like that again. But it got better and my tenacity creeped back in and I went back out there and Hoggins, Berman, Supermint had called me that summer and they said, we'll match your salary, which was appealing. And it seemed like an environment where it was going to be a different sort of vibe and different teammates and 
I was ready for a change. So I moved over to that team and I feel like that team, they were in their sophomore year. They were kind of underdogs. And um, I ended up winning the crit at Redlands solo. Not the first year I raced for them, but the next year. And that was the first big win for that team. And I feel like we deserved it. Like we were always an aggressive team. We made the races happen. Yeah. But after that, we were winning, like we won Winston-Salem that year. We won, like we were winning, winning, winning. And so it was just an amazing team to be a part of. That's huge. Um, that, did that go through 2000, who'd you race with 2019? Them. Them. Yeah, for okay. three years. And you have pivoted going into 2020. Yes. Welcome to Gravel. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and we should point out that you had some success at Rooted Vermont last year. Was that your first gravel event? So I won BWR in 2013 in its second year on a road bike. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but I don't know if you can call that like a pure gravel race. And it was, we didn't do Black Canyon back then. We did some other stuff. Yep, yep. But yeah, I snuck off to Rooted before Colorado Classic. I was like, <laughs> unbeknownst to your team. Laura, Laura texted me or messaged me like, we're doing this race. I don't know if it fits in your schedule. And I like replied and th- I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> she was probably like, what? <laughs> Are you road racing this year? That's huge. I'm so glad I said yes. It was the best event. Everybody go to it. It's amazing. Oh, uh, too kind. So yeah, talk about the decision to go into this. Uh, I mean, Privateer is as good a word as any, but yeah. but to a degree, the whole gig economy of professional female cycling takes that that the guts to do something like that. So, talk about the the decision making to to go into twenty twenty and uh, from a like emotional standpoint, but then also the objective stuff that you had to go through. I think I decided. I mean, I didn't know we were going to lose our title sponsor either on Hoggins Berman when I was deciding it was just becoming too stressful for me to have someone else creating a schedule of when I'm going to be gone. And you're just on the road so much when you're road racing. And I, I pretty much honestly knew after rooted, mm-hmm. like I, I knew that I wasn't going to go back to road racing. I was like, this is the right thing for me. And I felt like it just fits my lifestyle and the vibe more. And I still really want to be able to give back to the sport. And mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of women that are attracted to gravel and the, you know, the inclusiveness of it. Mm-hmm. So that appealed to me too. And I um, <clears throat> approached Canyon Bicycles because they're local to... Encinitas they're in Carlsbad and they support a lot of our local teams and I kind of pitched them some of my ideas and they they were on board and so it's nice to to know that you have a big sponsor on board that can help you and I started piecing that together because a big part of it for me was in road racing you're always just like clinging to to survive you know Mm -hmm. you're living month to month and it's really hard I think every woman works and the female peloton, like we're all working, but it's just like, you don't ever really feel like you're getting ahead. And I felt like with gravel, you have that opportunity, but you also have an opportunity to be part of a community that's a little more close knit. And we, we work together in a different way, you know, Mm -hmm. where road cycling is very much like we each work independently. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So unfortunately I did race once this year at Rock Cobbler. Nice. Um, Such a great name. It is so hard. It's a mountain bike race. No kidding. I feel like. Is I that, mean, <laughs> it's in the Central Valley. Yes. California. 
isn't if I'm not mistaken, the terrain and like the the terra firma, the stuff that you're racing on, is just like chip seal holes everywhere, just gnarly. Is that the one? It well, I don't want to paint rock cobbler the wrong way if that's incorrect. I don't know. It feels like gopher holes. Okay, that it, sounds dangerous. It's, it's like these like motorcycle tracks that are. I'm not going to lie. The first 40 miles of that race, and I told Laura this, I was questioning if I was meant for gravel. I was like, wait a minute. This is, <laughs> this is so scary. This is not rooted Vermont. Where's my maple creamy? <laughs> this is a bunch of crap. I'm in Bakersfield, and I don't really like this place. <laughs> oh, man. But, questioning your life decisions already. Then there was like this big hour-long climb, and that's where I caught everybody, and then I got my confidence back. So, but it was a very hard race and it does, I mean, if you want to improve your skills on a gravel bike, you, you're either going to break your collarbone or you're going to improve your skills that day. Like it's, well said. A, it's a good one. And you came out on top. Came out on top. So is it more peaceful on this side? And, and granted on this side, we, when I say this side, I'm talking about gravel, but then we're also amid a global pandemic where the world has gone into to hibernation in terms of events. Is it easier just day to day? I mean, like you were talking about, like when you race for a professional female cycling team, you're at the behest of the team and then you're not earning much money, not to say that men's earn a lot of money either. Um, But you're not really in any way moving ahead in life. Mm -hmm. Whereas you are doing things like creating gravel camps. Mm -hmm. It allows you to continue work with JoJ. Not work, I mean, thrive with JoJ. So... Do you look at the decision and say like, yes, this is correct for general life? Yeah, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. Exactly. I I think the one thing that was hard was to turn off the training that I used to do on the road. Mm-hmm. And I came into the season way too hot. And it's so hard to do in Southern, or so easy to do in Southern California. Yep. Because everyone is flying by February and you get sucked in. But once I kind of, I think the pandemic has helped me let that go a little bit. But to your point, yes, like I mentioned earlier, I want to be able to give back in a real way, like not just an Instagram post. And so hosting a female gravel camp, like that was the first thing that we were doing and working within um, a group in Encinitas to kind of expand on a women's ride. And so we were going to offer in-person speaker series and we turned it into a webinar series. And just finding that way to be approachable and welcoming I find that it's very natural right now and I'm able to balance my time. And I think it will be, it'll be different next year when we all go back to traveling again, but it was kind of like a nice intro to how to manage my time. Nice. Yeah. So you also, you touched upon it earlier where, you know, life is going to deal you cards and then you pivot and make these different moves based on the cards you're dealt. Do you ever think back to, not to, not to say what ifs in a questionable sense, if you had stayed in academia, for yeah. example, if you had uh, you know, gone headlong into, into catering, like where do you suppose your life would be if you, <gasps> if you decided to not take your temperature that day and do the VO2 test? Like, do you, do you suppose know. you'd be a professor? Or what do I, you do with that degree? I feel like 
somehow I would have had to find bikes, I would feel like I'd be really sad without bikes. I wasn't before I found them, uh-huh. but now that I know what they are, I'm, I just can't, I can't imagine. And I think we all do that to some point where we get lost in that daydream scenario of like, what if I had moved to this town instead of this town? Or what if I didn't go to that group ride and meet my boyfriend, Sam? Or <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what, uh-huh. what would happen? And I... I think I probably would have done the same thing that my research mate that I was mentioning earlier did. She went to pursue her PhD and she was so burnt out from her master's that she abandoned after a semester. No kidding. But I don't know if I would have... She ended up becoming a wonderful mom and she shows her Burmese mountain dogs and that's what she got into. So I feel like I would have found something else and I don't know how it would have happened. But then I also do the scenarios of like, what if I had never broken my collarbone and I was a completely different human without crap arteries and Mm -hmm. like, because you can't help it, you can't help it, but think that. But I'm, I feel really grateful and really, really happy to be where I am right now. And it sounds like such an arbitrary thing to say, but I I actually feel like I've had to put, it wasn't just like a luck thing. There was definitely a lot of thought and hard work and and then just like a huge community of support and really wonderful people who believed in me for a long time, even when I had like a lot of crappy things happen to me. So I'm grateful. Hot damn. Um, you and I were, were, I'd say, well acquainted up to this point, and it's been very fun hanging out with you and becoming friends with you. And I see that positivity, and I see that that it's like you're the kind of person who sees the world with rose-colored glasses <laughs> and, and can spin a, a good scenario out of less than optimal scenarios. So let's go full, full circle. We are back in Whitefish, where you were born and raised. You... Home is still, I believe, technically Southern California. Mm-hmm. And with the potential of moving back to this wonderful spot, is that, well, I shouldn't have even said that. Is that of interest to you? Like, where do you, where does, where does Whitefish live on your radar? Is it future home? Is it purely home to your parents? What do you, what do you think about Whitefish? I think that Sam and I are ready to make a switch Part of it is affordability in California. It's crazy Mm -hmm. and it's just a crazy place to be. And you see in the pandemic whether the worst or the best come out in people. And it's the reason why everyone's visiting small towns. It's just, it's a nicer place to be. With that said, though, the winters here are going to be (laughs) an adjustment. I mean, you know... You guys, I mean, you can get out. Everyone lives here, like I say, because they want to. And so there's people to get out with. You always have that like buddy who's like, yeah, I'll ride with you in negative 10 or whatever stupid thing you have on tap. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think the other nice thing is Sam's family will be retiring in Encinitas. Ah, lovely. They are building a retirement home. With a guest bedroom? With a guest bedroom. And I think even a guest house. Oh, gosh. Which could be like a December, January house for Sam and Jess. Well, if Laura can make it in Vermont and not just make it, but thrive, which she is, (laughs) and it does hinge on pre-pandemic, the notion that we would have the escapability to go to warmer climates. And now that we have a van, I mean, geez, the world's our oyster. It's just a... 40-hour drive to get to warmer climates. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you're golden. So I dig it. I love the riding around here. This is 
my first time in Montana, which is outstanding. Um, I actually didn't know that it was your first time here. Yeah. Oh, it's super cool. I'm really glad you guys came. I only had to post like three days worth of really solid Instagram photos uh-huh. and scheme with texting with Laura. And she was like, he's in. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's a super cool spot. So let me think. I want to ask more questions, but we'll go to our final three questions. And then if I get more crafty, then I can think of other questions. So right. the three questions that I like to ask. One What's your favorite place to ride a bicycle? What is number two? What is the number one place that you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? And three, favorite person you would like to go ride your bicycle with, living or otherwise? My favorite place to ride truly is Whitefish. Ooh, great answer. I always look forward to coming here, and it's hard to find a better road road than the going to the sun road. Mm Mm-hmm. I have always wanted to ride in probably Switzerland the most. Mm-hmm. And I've read some pretty cool um, articles about some cycling tours there and some roads. Mm-hmm. But I would take some of the iconic routes in France too, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and my favorite person to ride a bike with is Sam. However, Laura is creeping up in the competition because <laughs> we discovered this trip that, um, well, it's hard to find people where it's just easy to ride with them. You're not waiting. They're not waiting for you. You just kind of do it and you have a similar style and capabilities. And it turns out that we're really good riding buddies. So I'm going to be sad when you guys leave tomorrow. Well, I can appreciate that because I ride with a variety of people and many of whom are all of whom are perfectly fun to ride with but I've had a blast riding with Sam because we have a similar yeah trajectory when it's time to go out on the bike 6 hours at 500 watts yeah out the door give or take got it warm up that's for the week <laughs> well sweet uh anything else what's on your mind what else have we got going on this fine evening besides a well, you, that, you guys wanted hour. the heat, so I made sure it was blazing this week. So maybe a, a dip in the lake. Nice. Some fine mountain sushi and <laughs> ice cream. Huckleberry ice cream. Oh, that's man. What's, that's what's on my mind is huckleberry ice cream. Okay, let's talk huckleberries real quick. I've never had a huckleberry until I had faux huckleberry ice cream. So disappointing. Which included huckleberry flavoring and blueberries as the faux huckleberries. So tell me... Describe a huckleberry to me. I feel I've thought a lot about it lately, like thinking about huckleberry <laughs> fin. They're I, everywhere. They're everywhere. You know what? You did have a huckleberry because you had a huckleberry macaroon. Correct. And I had a but huckleberry bear claw. They're a little more, yeah, I need to redeem this ice cream situation. It's really bothering me, actually. Okay. <laughs> um, a huckleberry grows in the mountains. You uh-huh. can pick them on the trails here. I think we've seen a few people picking huckleberries uh-huh. with the buckets Um, and I used to do that when I was little and my mom said she just set me under a bush when I was like able to sit up. So a couple months older than Hazel and I just sit there all day and have like purple mouth, purple fingers. (laughs) Um, but they are, they look like a blueberry, but smaller, but they have a tartness to them like a raspberry. They're really unique and they're delicious. Oh man. I'm picturing like, I'm completely picturing a blackberry. I know because I, I put that in your head when I said if a blueberry and a raspberry had a baby yeah. and you thought blackberry. Interesting. Well, they are the official fruit 
maybe the unofficial fruit of Montana. You see huckleberry signs everywhere. Huckleberry beer, huckleberry ice cream, huckleberry shakes. Huckleberry the number pie. of comments that I've gotten that I need to get a so-and-so huckleberry so-and-so from so-and-so establishment is <laughs> breathtaking. So thank you all for your suggestions. And maybe our next product will be a huckleberry untapped waffle. Well, yeah. amazing. Um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your tour guiding throughout the past five days. And yeah, I thank you very much, fun. Jess. You guys should come back every year. 